Howdy, plant friends. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Plant Proof Podcast. My name is Simon Hill, and I am the creator of plantproof.com and the Plant Proof Podcast. You can find me on social media on Instagram at plant underscore proof, where I post regular content to help you incorporate more healthy plant-based meals in your life. Whether that's one a day, one a week, or every meal, I don't mind. Simply a non-judgmental resource to help you eat some healthy meals that make you feel good inside and out. Before I introduce this week's special guest, I thought I would do a little recap of my time in New York City so far and some of the amazing places I've eaten. As Michelle recommended, Michelle McMacken, who I recently had back on the podcast, uh, I checked out Ja 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 or Ya Ya Ya, however you say it. Amazing vegan Mexican food. I believe they have a couple of locations. Awesome vibe, definitely worth going to. I also went to Suen, which is a Japanese macrobiotic restaurant, and I had some of the best purple sweet potato chips I've ever had. I will say I probably ordered the wrong main meal because I got the pesto tofu dish and it was a very oily pesto sauce, which I wasn't a huge fan of, but I'm sure all of the other dishes are not that oily and it's definitely somewhere I'm going to go back to because the rest of the menu did look amazing. Of course, I went back to see Vlad Vladimir at my favorite restaurant in the Big Apple, the Organic Grill. I get the veggie burger bowl and then add tofu scramble. Vlad has it down pat. And I do ask for less oil. It tends to be something I ask for at most restaurants because I don't cook with much oil at home. And really, I don't cook with any oil at home unless I have guests over. So it's now a bit of a funny flavor for me. And plus, it's just so much healthier to get your fats from whole foods as opposed to dripping oil, which is about 120 calories per tablespoon and offers really minimal nutritional benefits. If you eat 120 calories of fat from whole foods, you will be having so much more fiber, more vitamins and minerals with it. So it's not about demonizing fat, it's just about making wise, smart choices of where you're getting healthy fats from. Anyway, I'll have a plant-proof item on the menu at Organic Grill in New York soon for anyone to go and try when when they're in town or if you live here. We we're just working through a few recipes and experimenting to see what complements the current menu best. I also checked out Orchard Street and had one of their tofu bowls, really cool place. And there was a vegan shoe shop next door. It's in Chinatown on Orchard Street. I'm going to go back and try one of their tempeh sandwiches that they are famous for. And also, guys, I found a gym in Chinatown near where I'm staying called Ludlow. I think it's Ludlow. Ludlow Fitness. L-U-D-L-O-W, Ludlow Fitness. Amazing gym and it was only $30 a week for casuals. How good is that? One of the best value gyms that I have found anywhere I've, I've been across the world. Okay, so let me get into this episode. It's not every day that you get to sit down one-on-one with a fella that was a New York police officer for 22 years. He then went on to be New York State Senator that's right, New York State Senator, and is now the Brooklyn Borough President. Thankfully, Eric Adams has a real passion for plant-based nutrition, and one of his team members, Rachel, who saw the work I am doing, connected us. Now, you, you need to appreciate this guy's super, super busy. He literally works in an ultra-high security premises in New York and has people running his clock 
by the half hour. I was pretty blown away that he wanted to do this podcast and we got on really well. In this relatively short episode, we cover we cover a lot of ground. We cover a little bit about his childhood, where he grew up, his own health journey, his mother's health journey, and what he is doing at the Brooklyn community level in terms of health and wellness. Before we jump into the episode and hear from Eric himself, here's a little bit of background on just why the work he and his team are doing is so important. Brooklyn is the biggest of the five boroughs in New York. Nearly 30% of adults in Brooklyn are obese and 11% have diabetes. Chronic disease is taking a toll on the health and well-being of Brooklyn residents across the borough. Poor nutrition contributes to preventable diet-related chronic disease and low-income communities and communities of color are disproportionately affected. We know that. We have the data. Current urban environment often contributes to poor dietary intake with little space to grow fruits and vegetables. Just think about that. In the urban environment, there is very little space to grow fruits and vegetables. It makes sense. Limited access to fresh and high-quality ingredients. Few opportunities for citizens to connect with the process of food production. And there is an abundance of convenient, but very, very, very poor quality food. So far, under Brooklyn Borough President Adams, 29.7 million US dollars has been invested into health initiatives in Brooklyn, such as urban agriculture projects, education at school level, and changes to school menus, community initiatives or challenges to get people to cut their salt and sugar intake, cooking workshops, plant-based nutritional education options for patients leaving hospital, which has been done in conjunction with Dr. Michelle McMacken, who we've had on the show a few times. They've set up a veg fest, there's plant-based meetups, Brooklyn Healthy Eating Guide, and more, some of which Eric goes into during our conversation. I truly believe what Eric and his team are doing will act as a blueprint for the rest of the world to follow. And I really, really, really believe in what they're doing and it's just absolutely amazing to see someone so passionate about improving the health and well-being of people at a community level. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome to the Plant Proof Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I like the name of the podcast. You know, like being ex-cops, we like to be bulletproof. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so now I want to be plant proof. Well, by the, by the end of this episode, I'm sure everyone will see that you are certainly plant proof. <laughs> now, it's, it's really incredible to have someone on the show with, with your experience and, and credibility, someone as esteemed as yourself here and well-respected in New York and, and in Brooklyn, just to take us through the importance, I guess, of what you know, health and wellness at a community level, what it looks like and, and things that we could all be doing, whether it's in Brooklyn or around the world, to better improve the health of our community. So I look forward to, to diving deep into understanding what you and your team are doing and Rachel is sitting here with us. I'd like to thank her. She's been very good at connecting us and setting today up. So thank you very much for that. Now, before we do jump into these bigger picture issues and, and what you're doing at a community level, I'd like to just understand a little bit more about you and how these passions have developed. Did you, did you grow up in Brooklyn? What was life like as a kid? Are you from a typical American family? People often hear the name Brooklyn 
And that's a popular name throughout the globe. And in fact, when you look at some of our website activity, uh, much of that activity comes from across the entire globe, people hidden on Brooklyn. So that folks would know Brooklyn is one of the five municipalities or counties in New York City. We're the largest of the five with 2.6 million people. I always like to point out that 47% of the population speak a language other than English at home. So we are extremely diverse. We really generate the cultural activity for the entire city. And New York City generates the cultural activity for the entire country. And everyone knows that America has a global impact on cultures all across the globe. So it really starts here in the borough of Brooklyn. If we were a separate city, we would be the third largest city in America. Ah. So this is an amazing place with a lot of energy. And that is why we are excited about this discussion on healthy eating, because we know if we get it right here, it's going to have a cascading effect across the entire globe because we're all wrestling with the same problems. It's unfortunate that not only is our music and our culture and our entertainment industry making an impact globally, but so too are our many bad eating habits. When I crisscross the globe, I see the same artery clogging Kentucky Fried, Kansas Fried, McDonald's, and other fast food that we find in the local municipalities in America, I see it in so many other cultures. Those cultures who used to eat healthy, now they have embraced the American lifestyle. And with that comes the American diseases. So within the, the borough, is it, did you grow up in a specific area? I was born in Brownsville, Brooklyn. Brownsville is one of the low economic and high crime areas of the city. And I moved to Queens in sort of a middle income community. I went from a, what's considered a tenement building, fourth story walk up. And I moved to a private home in Queens. It was a small home, but my mother was able to afford to improve somewhat our living standards. And I spent my middle years from the age of seven to 20 in Queens. And then I returned to Brooklyn and I continued to be in Brooklyn ever since. And part of a typical family, I guess, in terms of what you were eating, consuming, like similar to all other families in, in those areas? So true. Six, six brothers and sisters or five, and I make the six. And for the most part, we had a Southern diet. Our family was from Alabama and much of what we ate was a meat-centered diet. We ate everything around, you know, the type of meat that we will have and everything focused on the meat in any type of way, fried, boiled, broiled. It didn't matter as long as it was meat. And for the most part, it was a diet that was consumed by just really bad artery-clogging disease promoting type meal. And when my family moved from the South and moved for the most part to Brooklyn and New York City, uh, so too did we bring the diet that we were accustomed to from the Southern parts of the country. And so you went on as a, as a, a young man, you went on and, and you worked for the police force? Yes. Yes. I was a member of the New York City Police Department. I spent 22 years, I retired as a captain, and I always like to share that there's rumors of police officers liking donuts. That's not a rumor because we do. That's all we ate all the time. And it was just part of really the diet that we had. It was indicative of 
a lifestyle that consumed just bad food because it was a macho image. Policing is a macho image. You want to come across as the tough guy. And the worst thing you want to do is eat foods that doesn't give that same image of the tough. The steak, the donuts, the fast food, the hero sandwiches, all those things that go with, you know, the machoism of being a police officer. I mean, you worked for, what, a couple of decades as a police officer, right? 22 years. Must have seen some some crazy things. Life was full. And in, uh, policing in a big city is different from policing in a small town. In a big city, you get the communalization of all the things that people do horrific to each other and harmful to each other. And it could run the full list from rape and robberies to homicide and murders to chopping up bodies to all sorts of mindset. You, man can be very brutal and creative in this, his or her brutality. And we saw that throughout those 22 years. And how was your personal health and, and well-being? I guess you, you alluded to the fact that your diet was probably not the greatest at that point in time in your life, but were you were you also quite physically active? Were you working out or doing any sport? And what did you think of your health at that stage? Very interesting. And that's a great question because oftentimes we define our health more so by the outward appearance and not the inward appearance. And we use such a a weak definition of being healthy. I spent a lot of time exercising. Exercising was always part of my life. And I spent a lot of time thinking that I was eating healthy by the foods I was I was consuming. But in reality, now that I look back on it, I realized that I was not, nowhere near doing what the body needs. And, and I had to adjust to that. How do you think you'd formed those opinions based on those foods? Like, why do you think you thought those foods were healthy? Was it just because you, all of your colleagues in the police force were also eating them or, you know, other other kids at school? Like, what shaped those views? I think it's a combination of what shaped the views on what you should eat. You sit down, you watch. I was a sports guy, so I love various sports teams. You sit down, you watch your players and what the players are eating. So you think that, hey, their game is at an optimum level, then, then let me, you know, junk down some pizza or let me junk down uh, an item that, you know, I watch them eat. Or you look at a commercial, milk does your body good. So you wanted to get a milk mustache like, you know, Serena Williams or some great athlete. And so a combination of what I saw my sports figures consume and then what I saw around those people I hung out with. And then most importantly, what was available in the community. In many of the communities where young African-Americans, young Caribbeans, young Hispanics, you are in a fast food market. It is people could believe that is more time consuming and less costly to just run across the street to the quick Chinese restaurant and have shrimp fried rice. Convenience. Right. The convenience when you're trying to just really eke out a living you really don't have the right instructions to show you the possibilities of eking out a good quality and healthy living. I think your point about the athletes and even now kids looking up and having role models that are athletes, but not fully understanding that they might eat something, but a lot of these issues and chronic illnesses that we face, the symptoms are not arising until later, you know, despite that, that athlete being able to fuel themselves with that in their late teens and twenties and early thirties 
it, it doesn't necessarily mean it's it's also the best form of fuel for longevity. That is so important because oftentimes youth and youthfulness gives the impression that, well, this is not going to hurt me. The feeling and the belief of being invincible, when in reality, our body is an amazing tool if you use it correctly, but any tool that is built in the capacity that our body is built, it doesn't break down instantly. If you put bad gas or bad oil in your car, it is not going to break down as soon as you as you do it. But over time, it's going to all of a sudden going from operating at its optimum level to even reaching the point that it's going to break down. And I think the body is a great analogy to a vehicle that is built well, can serve you well, but if you abuse it over time, it's only a matter of time. You're not going to get that 100,000 miles. You're going to break down sooner. Now, after the police force, I believe you went and worked as a senator. What transpired in your life sort of between then and now to, to make you a little bit more conscious about the foods that you were putting in your body and what they were doing to your own health? When I left the police force, I became a state senator. I was elected in 2005, and I served from 2006 to 2014 when I eventually was elected to become the borough president of Brooklyn. And during that time, my diet remains subsequently the same for the most part. And it wasn't until 2016 that I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. I thought it was something dealing with my colon when in fact it was just, it was an ulcer that I had in my colon but for the most part it was the diabetes the doctor shared with me that was a serious problem and not to say that the ulcer was not related to the food I was eating as well but in 2016 I was told I was type 2 diabetic and it impacted my vision I lost most of my sight in my left eye and I was losing sight in my right eye and I had permanent nerve damage in my hands and feet and in my thigh. I lost feeling on my right thigh. That's scary. Scary is putting it light, lightly. It's frightening. Yeah. <laughs> it is, it is, it is nightmare on Elm Street on steroids, I like to say. It was a very, once you start seeing your body break down as, as fast as, as it broke down and it was actually probably breaking down at such a gradual level that, you know, as men mostly do, we ignore many of our injuries. We we say, suck it up, you know, move through it, operate through it. But the reality was my body was sending me warning signs and I was ignoring those signs. And and when the doctor explained to you and said, look, you're, you're type two diabetic. This is, this is what it means. Did, did he or she go through the prognosis? What was the outlook that was explained to you at that initial stage? That is a great question because he did not say you are type 2 diabetic. This is what it means. He said you're type 2 diabetic. You're going to be on medicine the rest of your life. And that was the end of the conversation. Here is the prescription you need to take. You need to be on insulin right away because my A1C was so high that they said I need to immediately go on insulin. And here's, here are the series of other medicine that you need to take to deal with it, as well as here's the medicine you need for your ulcer 
And here's the medicine you need for the nerve damage. Here's the medicine that you could slow down your eye loss, but you're going to lose your sight and you probably lose a couple of fingers and some toes in the process. So there was an immediate response to just those symptoms. And all the doctors I visited in the city, because as the borough president, I had access to some of the great hospitals and doctors in the city, and they all gave me the same outlook, but different theories. Because the number one question that I presented to them that no one seemed to have been able to give me an answer is, how did I become diabetic? And I was told a combination from eating too many carbohydrates to it's hereditary because my mother was diabetic for 15 years, seven years on insulin and 15 years on different types of medicine. And so they connected it to the DNA of my mother and it's just something that's hereditary and there was just a reaction that this is something that you should expect. So they were were putting it down to fate. This was inevitable. Right, right. Which is very fascinating that the belief from those doctors basically pointed in a direction that, you know, don't really get so alarmed. You're, you're bound to, you're bound to receive it in any way. The in, inevitability of becoming diabetic because it's hereditary was a reality. And I know from then you, you went on a journey where you started to, to look into nutrition and the way that you were fueling yourself and took some things, I guess, into your own hands. What happened? Who did you meet? Who who sort of sparked that journey of you digging a de- bit deeper and not accepting that it was fate, not accepting that you were going to be on all of these medications? I understand that you, you, you may still be on some now, but but in terms of just deciding, look, I'm going to try and manage this differently. The It just didn't sit right with me being told that I was going to be on medicine the rest of my life. That just didn't sit right. And so I like to say that I just did something very revolutionary. I went to Google and Google reversing diabetes. And in the process, just a wealth of information came up. Information about how you can actually reverse diabetes without medicine. And just to put a footnote, I'm not on any medicine at this time. It's amazing. And when... I visited some of the, one of the doctors, a doctor in Ohio at the Cleveland Clinic, uh, Dr. Esselton. He is a really a, a person that I believe that understands the power of food. I called him and visited him in Ohio. And at the same time, I saw a book that was produced by Dr. Gregor, How Not to Die. Had him on the podcast last week. Yeah. <laughs> he's, a, he's a great doctor. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. And I traveled down to, I traveled down to see him. And upon communicating with him, uh, Dr. Essie down in Ohio, he told me the series of things that I need to do. And I returned back to the city just determined and with a real mission of reversing my condition. And three weeks after returning to the city, going to a whole food plant-based diet, my vision cleared up. And three months after that, my nerve damage went away in my hands and feet. My thigh nerve damage went away. The ulcer went away. My cholesterol normalized. My A1C went from the high teens down to a 5.7. My blood pressure normalized. It was just a complete reversal in such a short period of time. What were some of the main foods? I mean, obviously you removed animal foods, but what were some of the main animal foods that you were eating regularly before you made that switch? 
a hamburger, fish, steak, lamb chops, the, the whole package. <laughs> you know, I was a McDonald's guy. I was a, a, a 10, the 99 cent menu was one of my favorite locations when I was on the run. Just, you know, the whole pro- bread, processed bread, cakes, pastries, just a whole combination of things. And moving, I guess, straight to a whole food, plant-based diet, it must have obviously you had a very good reason to do so, but was it hard? Were you, or was it an easy transition? Were you shocked by the change in what your meals look like? It was fascinating. Once I started to fully comprehend that I was not really having any diversity in what I was eating. For the most part, I was eating the same thing. Oftentimes I laugh at people when they tell me that don't you get tired of what you're eating? Don't you want to taste certain foods? But in reality, People eat the same thing. Like every morning I will have a green smoothie with with a bowl of fruits and some other high nutrient shakes or powders. And people will look at it and say, don't you get tired of having that every morning? I said, well, you eat two eggs on a roll and bacon every morning. (laughs) So it's, it's, it's really funny how the mind can actually control what you think you are losing or what you are gaining. But it was about, getting away from that meat and processed food that was so important. And I'm so far removed from that. And it wasn't something that's instant because, you know, you are still hooked. Food is like heroin. <laughs> you know, it, it, it can hook you. It's and, and it is. It's and some of those processed foods are, are designed in labs to be super palatable and super addictive. And you long for it. And if you go into the transformation with the thought process that you're not going to have binges and urges, you're setting yourself up for failure. You need to comprehend that, hey, I, I am addicted to sugar, fat, salt, meat, oil, and I need to treat it with the level of respect that you treat an addiction. And over, I mean, you notice changes fairly quickly. How long did it take you to get off your medications that they'd given you? Three-week period. As the doctor later explained to me, you need I needed the, the medicine to like deal with the emergency crisis that I was dealing with. And I believe too many people don't fully understand medicine is never meant to be part of your daily life's regimen. You, sometimes you need it for emergency crisis to get it under control. I could have went into a coma because of how high my sugar was. Once you get it under control, then you need to transition off. What has happened is that people have started to incorporate medicine into their daily lives without the understanding that there is no medicine that comes free of any side effects, but the medicine that comes from the ground from vegetables and fruits. That is the medicine that should be part of our everyday regimen. There's nothing natural about injecting yourself with insulin, about taking metformin, about taking statin drugs, That is the body. That's not a natural process for the body. But we have been led to believe once a day injection is great. Once a day statin is great. Once a day high blood pressure is great. When that's the biggest lie, it's not great. It is is breaking down your body. You are harming yourself when you take medicine because your body is not meant to be forced to do something. It's going to come out another way. It's beautifully put. Now, Obviously, this personal journey has led you to making some changes in the community or putting things in place for changes in the future. 
what are some of the main things that you're working on in Brooklyn now at a community level that you'd like to see change? I think charity begins at home. And the first major impact on what we're doing and what I was able to do was to take my mother, who, as I stated, was on insulin for seven years, to show her this lifestyle of a whole food plant-based diet. Mom followed and mom is now off her insulin. And that is a wonderful experience. Was she skeptical at the start? Yes, she was. Because, you know, it is really difficult for a lot of people. Mother's 80 years old and you you have spent your life eating a certain way. And just the thought that you can reverse a condition that everyone basically has told you and drilled into you that it's a part of getting older. And she had to break free from that. And she was willing to try. When you want to heal and you're tired of being in pain, you're more willing to try something different. And she wanted to try and she tried and she saw the success of it. She must be incredibly grateful now. Yes, she is. And I am I am grateful that she cared enough about me as a son to say, I want to do all I can to live a more healthy lifestyle. Because diseases, chronic diseases, not only impact the person who's inflicted with the disease, but impact the caregivers. And it is a negative endless spiral and decline in the person, the family, and all those who are around them. And so a person that takes this step is not only doing what's best for them individually, but they're doing what's best for those people they love and who are around them. Now, I caught up with Dr. Michelle McMacken last night. Mm-hmm. She's also, she's been on the podcast a few times and she mentioned the Bellevue Clinic program. Can you sort of elaborate a little bit on what's going there? What's going on there? We are very excited about Bellevue Hospital is the only oldest hospital in America. And it's ironic that the oldest hospital in America, where we started to study much of our medical, organized medical treatments, is now becoming a place where we're starting a new initiative, where we're building a plant-based unit within the hospital. So a person comes in for a chronic disease, is now going to have an option, which is so important. It's not mandatory. We're not telling people you must go to the plant-based unit. We're saying that if you desire to look at things that you could do to reverse your condition instead of merely taking prescriptions or drugs that would sustain or cover up your symptoms, then here is an option for you. It would, it would, it's going to have doctors. It's going to have nutritionists. It's going to have those who are going to show people how to cook meals properly. And so it's a wraparound services that we are going to provide people with chronic disease. This is an amazing step forward in medicine that we believe that once people see the success of Bellevue, we're going to see that same success go throughout the entire city and then go throughout the entire country. And then our partners globally are going to embrace it as well. So it can act as a, a blueprint, so to speak. Yes, Yes, it's very exciting. Who would have thought in such a short period of time that this concept would have been embraced? But it's fortunate that my relationship with the mayor of the city and those like Dr. McMacken and Dr. Osfeld, those doctors who are doing this great achievements every day, they have embraced and they have remained vigilant. And now this is catching on in a very real way. This is really some, some good stuff that we're about to do. And I'm sure the, the doctors like Dr. Gregor and Dr. Esselstyn, which originally helped you, are probably looking on and are super proud to see that this is actually now happening. 
in a real life situation. So true. So true. They are really excited about it as well. The, I can I can see the passion as I'm speaking to you and I'm wondering outside of the sort of hospital system and people who have already developed chronic disease, are there are there things that you're looking at, I guess, from a um, an elementary school or a high school point of view in terms of prevention and, and just having some education on the ground to, to get people to understand nutrition before it's too late or before they have to be a bit more reactive? Right. I am a strong believer that you have to unlearn to learn. If you learn something improperly, it will impact your success. And in order to learn something properly, sometimes you have to to unlearn. We're focusing on our schools because we have to unlearn what we were taught about nutrition in schools. Milk does not do your body good. And we have to unlearn that thought process that it's a requirement. We have to unlearn the need of animal protein. One of the first things people say when you state you no longer eat meat is where you get your protein from. So we have to unlearn that concept that if you don't have animal protein, that you are unhealthy. So there are a series of things we're doing to unlearn those things that we learned that that are really preventing us from living a quality life. One of them is removing processed meat from schools. It's enough that the WHO is indicating that it's a type 1 carcinogen, just as up there with cigarette smokes. We don't light Marlboros every day and give our children something to smoke. We should not be giving them smoked turkey or smoked ham. And so we are focusing on how do we reverse those practices that are bad. We want to focus on removing milk from our schools and removing cheese from our school and other products that are really harmful for our children. So we started with Meatless Mondays and we're growing to schools that are vegan schools, vegetarian schools. We're encouraging teachers to associate the food that children are eating with some of the bad behavior practices that that you're seeing. We want to then go out and look at some of our correctional facilities. We would like to remove processed meat and bad food from our correctional facilities. We have a few hospitals that are joining us and having meatless Mondays in their hospitals and decreasing the consumption of meat. Eventually, we want, we want to see meatless Monday goes to meatless Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Fridays as well. We would like to see it out of our hospitals altogether. So there's a groundswell of movement towards identifying that Bad diets are creating bad habits that create bad health outcomes. It's, it's absolutely incredible. And I can, uh, I said it before, but I can see how passionate you are about it. It's, it, it feels like you, you really know your purpose. And I just want to thank you for what you're doing and, and, and your entire team, because no doubt a lot of what you do here at a school level, correctional facility level, hospital level is going to be looked at from countries overseas like Australia, like parts of Europe, everywhere. And hopefully once the data is out there, more people are inspired to make similar changes. So thank you very much for your time today. I know that you have a, a, a very, a very busy schedule. So I appreciate making yourself available. Thank you very much. Appreciate what you're doing. Let's continue to spread the, what we say in Brooklyn, spread love the Brooklyn way. Absolutely. <laughs> 
Well, that's what 30 minutes with the Brooklyn Borough President looks like. What a passionate man he is. Another example of someone who is using their own health journey to create positive change in the world. I could really feel how much all of this means to to Eric. And I look forward to connecting with him again to discuss the data that they're tracking as more and more of these initiatives are implemented. So that's it for this episode. Remember to connect with me on social media. You can find me on Instagram at plant underscore proof. And if you're looking for some extra plant-based nutrition information or recipes, check out plantproof.com. See you in the next episode, guys.